This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Lost in the Woods, tracing the origins of Hansel and Gretel. So it is time for another Fairy Tales in Focus episode, and have we got a doozy for you this time. Yeah, this was a favourite of mine as a child, Um, and on the surface it's a story about cleverness, courage and sibling devotion, sweetened with lashings of gingerbread. (laughs) But dig a little deeper and the disturbing origins and unsanitised themes will probably give you a sleepless night. Which is what we aim to do. Absolutely. Uh, We are of course talking about Hansel and Gretel, an incredibly popular fairy tale um, with comparatively recent beginnings, although it does nick a few things from far older stories yeah um, it's a tale which always does seem to resonate with children perhaps it's the huge cottage made of sweets or perhaps it's that every child has at some point felt that the adults around them are inexplicable and therefore a story on how to beat the system is a reassuring one yes Um, We'll go into all of that, but first, a recap for anyone who hasn't listened to one of our Fairy Tales and Focus episodes before So a brief overview of fairy tales. Fairy tales, morality tales, fables, myths and legends all get jumbled together. It's quite difficult to separate them entirely because these sorts of stories exist in almost every culture in the world. And what's a fairy tale in one place may be a legend in another. Yeah. Now, broadly speaking, legends and epics contain a historical element and are considered to have happened in full or in part. Yeah, whereas morality tales, fables and parables are concerned with delivering a message, and that's usually a religious or philosophical message. Mm -hmm. Fairy tales contain fantasy creatures such as uh, dwarves, elves, gnomes, mermaids, dragons, etc. And do not contain more than superficial references to religion, actual places, historical people or events. They happened once upon a time or photo long ago. Yeah, um, some folklorists also prefer the term Martian, um, which is wonder tale. Yes. Now, while we're familiar with fairy tales as they have been preserved, uh, written down, and while this can make it tricky to get to the roots because the sort of people who had access to writing and publishing were almost exclusively men, or at least the very rich, fairy tales were almost certainly stories told orally for thousands of years before that, and were most likely handed from mother to daughter or grandmother to granddaughter. Um, We also obviously have uh, the male equivalent as well. Now, another name for them subsequently is spinning tales. Um, Some people do prefer the term folk tales. Yeah. Um, the nature of a story, obviously, is to shapeshift to survive, and fairy tales have been shapeshifting for a very long time. Yes. So, on to Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hansel and Gretel is classified as an Arne Thompson Uther type 327A, which basically means it is a prototype for the cunning show-me-how type stories, you know, where... Um, The hero tricks the villain into doing something that's going to get the villain killed by asking them to show them how. Yes. Um, However, its past is a murky one, and it deals with some pretty 
his hishing some hard hitting issues. Yes. <laughs> Now, while the German version of the story by the brothers Grimm, um, Hansel und Gretel, is the most familiar um, and set the story in its current narrative form, the story does borrow elements from much older tales um, and has it has some cross-pollination with uh, completely different stories um, and takes a couple of themes from ancient classical myth. In addition, like many fairy tales, it has its roots in actual historical events. Hooray! Um, so let's take a little trip back to Europe in the Middle Ages, which is, you know, one of my favourite places to be, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Now, between the 10th and 13th centuries, a combination of various climate and weather conditions led to what became known as the medieval warm period. Um, during this time, crops were relatively easy to grow, livestock thrived, and a period of sustained warfare was generally short and localised. Uh, consequently, there were a couple of centuries of population boom, which went hand in hand with plentiful food, better medicine, and the evolution of art, science, and spiritual doctrine. Yeah, this, obviously, I mean, to be honest, if this was me or Madeline telling you a story, you'd know it was setting you up for a big fall. But yeah. This is history, <laughs> which is obviously setting you up for a big fall. It meant that the series of great disasters, which began in 1315, hit especially hard. A volcanic eruption caused temporary climate change and resulted in what is now called the Little Ice Age, which continued well into the Victorian era. So when you see Charles Dickens talking about snowy Christmases in London, it was at the end of this little ice age. That's how long this period of, of cooler temperatures lasted for. Yes. Um, now, the spring of 1315 was unusually cold and wet, with rain falling heavily throughout the spring and into the summer. Corn subsequently could not ripen under these conditions, so there were multiple crop failures. Um, hay could also not be cured for animal feed, so livestock died. And it was very hard to come by salt because the method of creating salt, which was obviously the main uh, food preservative at the time, was to evaporate the water off of brine and collect the sodium chloride crystals, which was not something that could be done during near constant rain. And on top of this came the flooding, which ruined pastures, killed off other crops, and brought disease. Yeah. The Great Famine of 1315 affected a huge swathe of Europe, from Poland to the Alps. Everyone was in the same boat, so it wasn't as if kingdoms could buy food from their neighbours. Even the wealthier kingdoms of England and France were in dire straits at that time. In England, food prices doubled between the spring and midsummer of that year. The price of grain then went up by 320%, meaning that peasants could not afford bread, which was a staple of their diet. The resultant population decline would only be topped by the devastation wreaked by the Black Death in 1347, which wiped out half of Europe's population. Yep. Now, to give you an idea of really... Uh... <laughs> how bad this was. Europe did not recover from the Great Famine of 1315 and the various subsequent small ones afterwards until 1322. Yeah, it wasn't just a bad year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the interim period was marked by extreme levels of crime, mass death and disease, uh, perhaps considered 
well, perhaps considering the food shortages, it's not really a great surprise that there were also high levels of cannibalism and infanticide. Isn't history charming? Yep. This sort of trauma tends to leave scars on cultural memory, so it's hardly surprising that the early iterations of Hansel and Gretel, which is a story of child abandonment and starvation at its heart, date back to around this period. Yes. Let's look at some more specific historical detail (laughs) with the two children of Norfolk. Yes. So the details of the story may also have its roots in actual historical events too. Um, Today, Babes in the Wood is a popular subject for pantomime during the festive season, but it should be noted that the original 1595 broadside ballad by Thomas Millington does not have a happy ending and could not really have made a good panto at all, unless it's, you know, you've got really dark kids. Uh, <laughs> it's not impossible. Uh, in the ballad, a wizard, uh, a wizard, a wizard, yes, a wizard, that would have been a great <laughs> I am not working today. Um, in the ballad, a widowed man dies and leaves the care of his young son and daughter to his brother, stipulating in his will that they will inherit all his wealth when they come of age. The uncle does not care about his nephew and niece at all, and would quite like them out of the way so that he can control their inheritance. Uh, He pays two kidnappers to take the children into the woods and kill them, while telling his wife that the children have been sent to London to be educated. (laughs) Yay. However, one of the hired thugs demurs at killing children and argues with his partner. It comes to blows, and the killer, with a conscience, kills the second thug. He has no problem with killing adults. Mm. Um, He tells the children that their uncle intends... Sorry, he tells the children what their uncle intends, but proposes hiding them in the woods, saying he will leave to find food and then return. However, something happens to him because he never returns. Instead, the children wander lost in the woods until they die of thirst. Robins then cover their bodies with leaves. It is a ballad, after all. Yes. <laughs> this is basically treated like a prologue to the main story. This isn't even the main story. Uh, which tells how the wicked uncle is then beset by demons for the murders of his kin. And it's all very over-romanticised, dramatic, and a bit preachy, which you'd expect for the time. Yeah, However, and I, I do t- feel like if anyone should deserves to be preached at, it's someone who's murdered a couple of children. <laughs> Yeah, fair. Um, (laughs) There are, however, a couple of two historical antecedents that fit the main facts of this ballad, which suggest it was actually based on real events. Yes. So during the 14th century, there is an account of two children who are commended to their uncle's care at Griston Hall in Norfolk. The uncle did indeed send them into Wayland Woods to die. Um, Bear in mind that most of... uh, Britain, actually most of Europe, was wooded at this time, and it Mm. was not a safe place to be. We still had wolves and lynx and things and bears. Yeah. Um, Aside from the fact that, you know, I think if you think, oh yes, I've had a walk through the woods, you've had a walk through really nicely maintained woods with paths where it's safe. If you've actually walked in actual woods where there are no paths, and it's clearly not designed for you, it's a very different experience. It's very dangerous. So, um, anyway... The uncle did indeed send them into Wayland Woods, as I said, to die, either of exposure or with hired thugs. Uh, folklore in the area states that the wood is haunted by the spirits of two murdered children. <sighs> <laughs> it 
It really doesn't take us long, it does it? Be... <laughs> no, we should get to a ghost story. No, not really. Um, there's another account as well, which is set in nearby Lancashire. It follows the true events, and I know these are true as I can I can make from the facts from the research. Um, from 1374, so. This is when Robert de Holland illegally seized the land of 13-year-old Roger de Langley and his young bride. Yes, if you're going, oh my God, they were 13 and they were married. Well, sorry, times were different. Yeah. Um, it was actually quite something that they had like comparable ages and they probably signed a contract saying, well, actually, it's not going to be consummated till much later if that makes you feel any better. Anyway, the two children fled into the woods where they were cared for by de Langley's father's foresters until their legal guardian John of Gaunt, yes, that John of Gaunt Richard II's <laughs> uncle famous philanderer John of Gaunt, richest man in Europe, could be summoned to rescue them Good, there's a happy ending with that one <laughs> Yes, well not for the guy who, not Robert de Holland Yeah, but um, I feel things like Things did not pan out well for him yeah, at all. I, I didn't imagine that they would really <laughs> <laughs> So there were lots of tales of children being abandoned in the wilds to fend for themselves. Uh, I mean, Greek myth is full of stories of exposed children, uh, either because uh, they were born with a disability or their birth displeased the gods or they were not legitimate or they happen to fall foul of a prophecy. <laughs> that happens a lot. Um, but these stories exist in many other cultures too, um, including Welsh, Irish, English, French, German, Polish, pretty much across the world you'll find them. Um, nor were these children, sorry, nor were these child abandonments always uh, predated by cruelty. Sometimes for desperate parents, it seemed the most likely way to give a new baby a chance um, when they were when there were already too many mouths to feed. Yeah, there's there's plenty of stories in chronicles about children being abandoned on monastery or abbey steps mm -hmm. and things like that. Or you know, a wealthy farmer, a child left. I don't know if you remember the sort of some of the old Tom and Jerry cartoons or some of the old Bugs Bunny cartoons where every so often you get one where one of the characters was posing as a baby abandoned on a doorstep saying, please give me a new home. Yes. Um, that's based on an actual historical fact. It did used to happen. Yes. <laughs> um, it had, However, it should be noted that in all these stories, the family is considered fractured until the child, often grown up, returns to the family either to set things right or take revenge or to set in motion the terrible events of the prophecy. <laughs> the point is, child abandonment was understood but never fully condoned. And I think it's worth keeping that in mind as we carry on with this. Yes. So let's very quickly go over the main beats of the fairy tale. So Hansel and Gretel are brother and sister whose father is a poor woodcutter. One night, their mother, or sometimes their stepmother, says to her husband that food is getting very scarce and soon there will be nothing for them to eat. And she manages to persuade the woodcutter to lead the children into the forest the next day with the intention of leaving them there to fend for themselves. Which would effectively be a death sentence. Yes. Um, however, the children are not asleep, but listening in on every word. Hansel tells his sister not to worry. He will make sure they can get home. He waits until everyone is asleep, then creeps out of the cottage and fills his pockets with small white stones from the path. When their father leads them into the woods the next morning, Hansel lags behind and leaves a trail of the small white pebbles. 
so um, the children eventually get tired and when they have to fall asleep uh, the woodcutter leaves them and returns to the cottage Thanks to Hansel's trail of pebbles, however, the children manage to find their way home by moonlight, and their father is overjoyed to see them. However, the stepmother persuades her husband to try the same thing again, this time leading them so deep into the woods they won't be able to find their way home. The children are once again listening, Hansel once again collects white pebbles, and when they are left even deeper in the woods, they are once again able to find their way back. Now, this time their mother is determined to be rid of them. So she ensures that the college, that the college, that the cottage <laughs> is locked and barred so Hansel cannot get out to gather pebbles. Instead, Hansel takes a piece of bread when he and his sister are taken into the forest the next morning and he crumbles it to leave a trail of breadcrumbs. Now, unfortunately, the birds come and peck up all the crumbs so that the children, who are deeper in the forest than ever before, cannot find their way home. They They wander for hours, growing steadily hungrier and hungrier, when finally they happen upon a beautiful cottage in a clearing made of gingerbread. The cottage, not the clearing. Yes. They begin to eat the house, as you do, and an elderly woman emerges saying that if they will leave her house alone, she has soft beds and good food for them inside. The children follow her inside the house, never suspecting that she is, in fact, an evil witch, or in some versions, an ogre. Check out our ogre episode to find out how those two things correlate. Yes. Now, the witch locks Hansel in an iron cage and forces Gretel to become her skivvy. She intends to fatten Hansel up, cook him and eat him. Every so often, the witch tells Hansel to stick his finger out through the bars so that she can see how fat he is becoming. Now, Hansel, or sometimes it's Gretel, has noticed that the witch is very slightly short-sighted and he cleverly offers her a thin bone from the floor of his cage instead. Now, after several weeks, the witch begins to grow impatient and she decides she's just going to eat him anyway. She tells Gretel to make up a good fire in the oven and then asks her to lean over to see if it's hot enough. Now, Gretel pretends not to know what she wants and keeps deliberately doing it wrong, until the witch, frustrated at her doltishness, demonstrates. At this point, Gretel immediately shoves her into the oven and slams and bolts the oven door. She then frees Hansel from his cage, and the pair then loot the cottage for the witch's valuables, which include a box full of gems. They set off home, and there's lots of stuff there's variations where they're helped by magical swans across a lake, etc. But we're not going to go into that. Um, but basically, they set off home to the woodcutter's cottage. It turns out their stepmother has conveniently died from unknown causes. Hooray! <laughs> and that their father has regretted his actions ever since he left them the last time. He's delighted to see his children, and with the witch's wealth, they all live comfortably for the rest of their days. So... <laughs> so. There are various different versions of this story from throughout history. So let's just kind of note some of the ones that uh, we know of. Um, One of, I think, the most obvious ones is Theseus and the Minotaur from ancient Greece, um, which was at least uh, 400 BCE, um, but is probably based on something older. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the whole episode of Theseus and the Minotaur is part of something much bigger. But um, the whole point of him trying to navigate his way through the labyrinth and Ariadne being the one 
saying, well, I'll give you a skein of wool, then you'll be able to find your way out again. Mm. Um, that's very definitely a theme that is picked up in Hansel and Gretel. Yes. There's also The Land of Cocaine, a 14th century poem, which was written in England. Um, it, this is, if you don't mind Middle English, as mm-hmm. in if you quite enjoy reading Chaucer, etc., this is not by Chaucer, but written in that sort of language. Um, you might enjoy this. Basically, the land of cocaine is where the good people go. And it's basically a land of plenty where everything is relaxed. There's no suffering. There's no hardship. And there's places which are literally just made of really good food. (laughs) So this is kind of where you might trace the origins of the gingerbread cottage from. Very nice. Um, Picking up that theme, there's Erdkuhlen. Uh, which is Martin Montanus, Germany, 1557. And Erd means the little earth cow. And it, it is basically a very early version of Hansel and Gretel, except Hansel and Gretel aren't children, they're two adults, I believe, or, you know, young adults. Mm-hmm. And the earth cow can provide everything. When the earth cow is very unfortunately killed, um, Hansel and... They're not Hansel and Gretel, but the two young adults are kind of blamed for it and um, hunted down by the local lord etc and have to use their wits to escape so again it's using a lot of the same themes yes and then there's garten gesellschaft um gesellschaft i think that's the garden of companionship gesellschaft is actually quite an odd compound word in german but it seems to be the garden of companionship okay um this is germany 1590 and it's it's basically like the land of cocaine again, mm-hmm. where you've got these huge places where everything is at ease, you don't have to work, there's no suffering, um, and everything's edible, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, we then go to uh, uh, Nanilo e Nenala, which is uh, Giambasta Basile in Italy, um, and that's uh, 1635. Yeah, I do want to just mention this one in a bit more detail. This is very clearly an early Hansel and Gretel. The children are very young. Mm-hmm. And I think the man is actually a fisherman, not a woodcutter, but he does, or a farmer. Anyway, he leads them. He marries a... Their their mother dies, and he marries a beautiful young woman who does not care to have another woman's children in her house. Yeah. And she berates him and browbeats him, and I don't know... Apparently she's got him completely henpecked because he agrees with her that he'll take them into the woods. Um, But he can't quite bring himself to just leave them there. So he leaves a a trail of oats behind. And then when he's left the children in the woods, they find the oats and they follow the oats back. And this happens two or three times. And then on the final time, all the oats get eaten by a donkey. Um, The children are then, this is where it departs from the later Hansel and Gretel narrative, uh, they don't really encounter an ogre. They, the children get separated by two different dangers, which I'm not going to go into. Um, and one of them gets, a, you know, the girl gets adopted by a pirate queen. It's all very swashbuckling. Love it. And the, <laughs> the boy gets adopted by a young prince. And uh, various things happen and then the children get reunited. And the prince is so infuriated that these two wonderful children have been abandoned in the forest uh, that he calls the the father, and the father just sort of breaks down weeping when he sees them and embraces his children. Apparently they're fine with him, despite the fact he abandoned them. And then the stepmother comes in, and uh, 
she makes a big show of, oh, who could do such a thing to such lovely children, blah, 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 and the prince doesn't believe her at all, so he cuts her head off. Very nice. Good job. Yeah. But I just wanted to mention this one, because the father in this, and admittedly I've only read a couple of translations, because my Italian is not great, <laughs> but my, the father in this is the wettest idiot ever. <laughs> Genuinely, it's just sort of like, well, yes, I suppose I should be part of murdering my own children because you don't like them. It's like, oh, you could just throw that woman out of your house and protect your children. Yeah, seriously. Which it was not actually a radical concept in Italy in the 17th century. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, from that one, which is annoying, to The Lost Children by Antoinette Bonde... Do you want to say the name Madeline? <laughs> I'm like, I'm halfway through and I'm like, no, it's Antoinette Bonin, uh, Revue de Tradition Populaire. Yes. You, you can have the next one, for sure. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, you got to love French aristocracy. They, uh, they really love their have. names. <laughs> we all get to that. Anyway, this was written in France in 1640-ish, so after, after Ninello and Ninella. Um, this one is actually very disturbing, me reading it go and go and check it out for the full details but the, the the familiar beats of the children being abandoned yeah that's the same and then they don't come across a witch in the wood they come across a house they, they um the boy climbs a tree and he spies a red house and a white house and they make a decision to go to the red house <laughs> which was bad because the devil lives there. Except you can tell from reading the text that actually it's not the devil. It's clearly just a human man who is very, very bad. Yeah. And it, he's not there when they knock on the door. His wife is there and she's she says, no, no, you must go away, my children. You don't understand who lives here. And he comes back at that point. He immediately imprisons the boy in a barn or a shed outside. And the girl is forced to work for him in his house. What's really disturbing about this is there's an element of that this man is domestically abusing his spouse mm -hmm. and has design has sexual designs on this young girl, this girl who's clearly about sort of nine or ten. Yeah. And that he also intends to eat the boy, which at this point is kind of incidental because he's already someone who is prepared to commit rape and domestic abuse and murder. So eating him at that point is kind of like, yeah, we... we we would still kill you. Yeah, why not? Um, and it, it it seems to be reading kind of as a warning that you cannot assume that people mean you well. Uh, obviously, the children escape and the, the woman escapes as well and they make their way back to the father, etc., etc. Um, as I said, look up the story if you want to read the whole thing. But it's very definitely got this sexual subtext mm. of a very disturbing kind of, uh, no, there, there, are, there, there are people who will sexually assault children. Yes. Involved as well. Uh, so then jumping to a, another French version about 20 years later, um, we have Finette Cendron um, by. Okay. <laughs> Take a breath. <laughs> Madame Delnoy, um, who is Marie-Catherine Le Gemal de, uh, de Barneville, Baroness uh, Delnoy. We got that. <laughs> this is written in 1660. Yeah. Now, if you're thinking Finette Cinderon is actually a Cinderella retelling, you're right. But the very beginning of the story, 
goes, a king and a queen suddenly realised they had no money. Yes, I know it doesn't seem very likely, but there you go. (laughs) So they decided to abandon their three daughters in the wild. Um, But the youngest of them, Finette Syndrome, is actually very clever, and she lays a trail back to the house, and she does this another time. And then on the third time, she's only she only has oats, and a donkey comes along and eats them. So once again, you've got that that Hansel and Gretel set up at the beginning, and then it sort of spirals off and becomes a Cinderella retelling. Yes, um, though it does involve because we have actually talked about uh, uh, Finette Sindron um, in um, in our Cinderella episode, so you can check it out there. But it does involve her pushing, uh, or rather, her dealing with ogres. Yes. Um, so anyway. <laughs> We then have uh, Hansel and Gretel, which at this point you should be familiar with. Oh, sorry. No, of course. We have another French version, of course. And now this is actually the version I knew better than Hansel and Gretel. And that's uh, Le Petit Poussé, which um, it means the little thumb, uh, but is sometimes translated to uh, Hop, Oh My Thumb, which is by Charles Perrault. Um, and that was around uh, 1697. Yes. Um, so this version has all sorts of fun stuff. Um, and again, it's rather than sort of just two children, it's actually a number of children. Um, there's a there's a whole bunch of them. And yeah, the, they yep, never say exactly how many do they, depending. Yeah, often you get seven of them, but um, yeah. it, it, it will depend, basically. And they're all boys as and well. And they're all boys, yes. Um, and uh, Le Petit Pousset is called that because he is the smallest. He's the youngest, um, and he is the smallest, so he's called Thumb. Pousse or Pousset, you get a lot of in in France. It's it's very sort of not cutesy terminology, but it's it's what you would call someone. It's kind of like half pint or something like that. Yeah. So he's called that because he's so small. Um, and they also encounter an ogre. He does use stones. He tries to use breadcrumbs as well, with the same results. Um, and at one point they do encounter an ogre. Uh, who has an equal number of daughters and they try and stay at his house um, and the ogre comes in to basically um, he knows that they have he has guests so he comes in to try and eat them but depending on the version I think there are actually versions where they actually manage to out trick the ogre and so the ogre eats his own children instead which yeah, <laughs> like Perrault <laughs> please the, the, the version I read was the ogre comes creeping in to murder them in their beds presumably to then eat them yes um, but the boy um, uh, Le Petit Pousset has has sort of said oh no we're going to switch beds around this will be fun girls kind of thing because apparently it's fine that they're all staying in the same room so yeah. the girls uh, sleeping in the beds the boys should have been in and the ogre sort of murders them that way and yeah. there's all sorts of stuff where he does loads of great trickery and and what have you all the way through. Yes. Each bit getting a bit more, like, unbelievable, yes. to be honest. <laughs> Before they manage to make their way home with great treasures. So yeah. then we get to Hansel and, Gr- and Gretel. Yeah, which is also called Das Bruderchen and Das Schwesterchen. And this is obviously the Brothers Grimm, 1810, um, but it was revised several times until 1850. Because if you read the 1810 version, it's a lot grimmer than the 1850 version. <laughs> and 
the publishers and the public did not like the fact that in the original version, it's their mother that's getting them out of the house and not their stepmother. Yeah. I think it's worth mentioning at this point that the, it, you know, if you're going back to Gian Battista Basile, he's not that sort of time or earlier. The, the concept of stepmother was kind of, it wasn't really important. It wasn't important whether the mother who was in the place of motherhood in your house was actually a blood relation of yours or not at that point. Yeah. She was the mother figure. Ergo, let's say your father is a lord in his 50s and his wife has died and he marries a 17-year-old girl. She becomes your stepmother. She might be the same age as you, Yeah. Um, but technically she's your mother now, not just your stepmother, and you pay her the deference you would pay to your mother. Yes, and the important thing to recognise is that mother wasn't just a... There was a status element there, you know. So age didn't matter. To be a mother, you did have different status within the house. Um, And, like, that was quite literal, not just sort of figurative within the family dynamic. Yeah, definitely. Um... Anyway, I think I still think the Brothers Grimm version of Hansel and Gretel is still pretty grim, full stop. Yeah. But I think they tried they tried to make the motives of the mother figure for getting the children out of the house um more inherently selfish to her rather than actually this was a joint decision because they can't feed their children, which is it is very literally reflecting that time in 1315 where you might have six children in the house and there's another baby on the way. Yes. And you cannot afford to feed them all, so you might push your 12-year-old daughter out of the house because she's got a better chance of fending for herself, which is still technically child abandonment, but she's old enough to understand how to feed herself, etc. Yes. And and it's... You can kind of, again, and we've talked about this, so we're not going to go into it too much, but you can see the Christian influences and how fairy tales began to change at this point, because you got this this sense of, you know, goodness will be rewarded, evil will be punished. Um, and so you had to have these clear-cut lines between what was what. Um, yeah. Rather than it being reflective of, you know, sometimes everything is shit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I want to... I obviously would like to go far and wide when I'm collecting these references but there is a west african story from zosa folklore called the story of the bird that made milk it was collected in 1886 but chances are it's been told for generations before that it's just that someone wrote it down in 1886 when they were collecting west african folklore yeah Um, this is a weird one um but it is it does kind of follow the basic beats of Erdkulen, you know, the little earth cow, and Hansel and Gretel, and you've got a brother and sister, and there is a marvellous bird that gives milk, and mm-hmm. it never fails, even when the cattle fail. And then through an accident the bird is killed and eaten, and the children are blamed for it, and then you're following the basic beats of Hansel and Gretel, except instead of being left and abandoned somewhere, their family kind of abandons them by sort of, you know, hunting, trying to hunt them down, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. But once again, it's the themes of starvation and privation, etc. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to just... At some point, I'd love to do just a, <laughs> a whole episode about Gorsa and, and just various sort of African 
um, sort of uh, tribal stories. <laughs> I say African tribal stories. I mean, there's a lot of countries in Africa. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah. uh, just sort of, I'd love to do that because you will start yeah. to see so many similarities and yet at the same time, just lots of various bits and bobs so i'm getting excited so we shall move on before i uh, we shall move on otherwise i'll start talking about the talking skull one which is one of my favorites i know (laughs) i love that one anyway another time yes uh we then have johnny and grizzle um which (laughs) grizzle grizzle was his best approximation (laughs) which is uh by joseph jacobs in england um in uh 1916 Sorry. It do- <laughs> Don't blame you. I was laughing at it as well. This essentially is a rip-off of Hansel und Gretel. And except for some reason, Grizzle. Grizzle? Why Grizzle? Um, I think it's to make her a comical character. What I found most interesting about this is that instead of changing it um, so that it's not the Gretel character who kills the witch, because I don't think we've talked... In fact, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um... He actually has Grizzle do exactly that, murder the witch. It's really quite unusual, and I think that feeds into a very particular mindset that weirdly we've carried forward through time from the Middle Ages. Mm. So we will talk about why. (laughs) Yes. So let's go over the themes very quickly. Now, the first one is obviously quite um, obvious, and that is survival, um, but also the coming of age rights. basically the the moment where you can differentiate between a ch- between being a child and an adult and the big thing to recognize here is is that in the sense of a ch- uh, you know where are you no longer a de- um, a dependent when do you become independent and if you can survive in the woods on your own you are independent now of course we look at this and go no those are still children they <laughs> still need help um but if you look at the kind of the themes the ideas and the sort of the origins you see this sort of coming of age story where these children have to really start problem solving for themselves yeah absolutely um this taps into you know many in fact probably every single culture has its own coming of age right mm-hmm. um it you know for if we're back to the Middle Ages, when we think this this originated too, it was when boys were about 14 and they were allowed to bear arms. For girls, it would have been a much more clear-cut because you have the onset of periods, so it would have been around 12. Yes. Um, um, and we... But there were also coming-of-age rights where children, we, children as we would define them, were literally sent out into the wild, if we go much further back, with nothing but a small knife and a shift. Yes. And told to make their way back to the settlement. And if they could do that, then they'd pass their adulthood ride. Yes. And it's also the idea of children being sent off on tasks. I mean, if you think of Little Red Riding Hood, it's the same thing. Go off into the woods. Um, here You are being given a task. You're being yeah. trusted with this as an adult. Um, you no longer need supervision, essentially. Yeah. Um, there is also the far grimmer themes of starvation and infanticide. Yes. Um, I've I've read far more about this than I actually would have wanted to, to be honest. But if we're looking at something like, I, I imagine if the 1315 famine was anything like Angor to Moor, mm-hmm. then probably a lot of children were murdered just after they were born. Just not as a, not as a cruelty measure, but simply because it was better than letting a baby starve to death. 
because yes. the mothers, you know, were already weakened from lack of food. The milk wasn't going to come in. There was no wet nurse. So the baby was going to cry in, until it, it died. So it was actually a mercy stroke. Yeah, um, and of course, there, uh, during this time, there were less options for abortion. There were less options to just stop becoming pregnant, obviously. Um, yeah. And the fact of the matter is, is that a baby cannot contribute, cannot help, and is just another mouth for a long time. They are a total dependent. Whereas if you do have a, you know, even a, a six, a seven-year-old, they can start to help around. They can actually start to do things around the house, etc. Yeah, we, I mean, we know that most cultures, certainly if we go back, if we go back quite a long way to sort of our very primitive, I say our primitive ancestors, they were just sophisticated in a different way. Um, we know that certain groups of them did, in fact, practice infanticide as yes. a method of ensuring that basically the tribe survived. Um, mm. A child was not, you know, if we look at an anthropomorph sorry, anthropological terms, if we look at it like that, a child was not a member of the tribe until they had been accepted and named. So you didn't accept and name the child if it wasn't going to survive. And sometimes it was infanticide practiced on children that were born with significant disadvantages who were not going to survive or yes. they thought were going to be impaired in some way, which sounds horribly cruel to us, but in their terms it, it was a practical solution. Yes. Um, and there is one instance where I'll say, you know, if you've ever read Wild Swans by Young Chan, she talks about her time as a barefoot doctor under Mao's regime. Oh god, um, yes. And she said a man came to her in her hut, out in out in the paddies at one point, um, weeping and begging to be turned over to the soldiers because he was starving to death, literally starving to death. You know, his ribs were staring out and all sorts. And he said it was like a complete madness. It just completely consumed him, this hunger. And he killed his infant child and he ate it. Yeah. And this is not an unusual thing. This, you know, the cannibalism that did happen in Ireland during Ancorton War and again during 1315, every time there's been a big famine, it's not, you know, it's not a mark of, it doesn't take very much, is what I'm trying to say, to push us to the point where we will maybe not commit murder, but we will certainly eat the dead. Yes. Um, and I think the thing is that people tend to think of hunger and they tend to think, oh, well, that's just it. But what one forgets is when starvation happens and you really don't have anything to eat, um, what will actually happen in your body? And it's no, it stops just being hunger. Yeah. Um, it is incredibly painful. Um, yeah, you're just driven. Your body is eating itself and you are driven to survive. Yes. Um, and we see these kinds of stories and we see these sort of traditions which reflect these stories throughout folklore. We see it in the changeling myth. We see it also in old traditions of not naming a child until past a certain point, both for the practical reason that young children were more likely to die, but also with this idea that the name is what kind of makes a child human, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it gives them a place, and until that point, they don't... Um, there's kind of... It takes the pressure off of the parents, as it were. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and it's not an absolute given that this, this sort of thing will happen, but it's not unusual for it to happen either. 
Um, and it's just, it you kind of can't really hold people accountable in the same way because this is this is an urge to survive thing. Uh, it, as abhorrent as abandoning children in forests and, you know, maybe eating your young or committing infanticide are, Mm-hmm. There, there's there's good reason at the time for these yeah. these actions or I they mean, seem good yeah I mean for some they really did think actually uh, it, it was in their eyes a mercy because death was coming regardless and perhaps it was kinder to give their, their children a quicker death than to you know let them starve to death Yeah, which is a very um, slow and awful awful death and with the abandoning children in the woods there was also an element of leaving god's hands yes if it's god's will they'll die they'll die if it's god's will they'll survive then they'll survive which is horrible but again within the mindset of the time yes okay let's move away from that very grim topic um (laughs) um, another theme that we see is the idea of people who are supposed to care for you failing you yeah and you know, sometimes just by being weak, like the father figure almost exclusively is, mm-hmm. or sometimes by deliberate, essentially malice, as in, or selfishness. Yes. And I think this does kind of play into the whole coming of age things, that point where you realise your parents are not God. Yes, they're not, that, they're not always right. <laughs> they're not always right, and they, yeah, they are going to fail you. They're going to fail you by being weak and being human, and maybe in some cases just genuinely being evil. Yeah, absolutely. What's also interesting is obviously depending on the different versions, the different times, we also start to see political and social failures as well in the different versions we've discussed. Uh, we don't really have time to go into them, but you know, if you look at some of the French versions, there are slightly different themes and ideas. And also, if you look at some versions, it's not so much that they're being starved, therefore that's why the abandonment has happened, but because of other social issues, etc. Um, so it's worth having a look at some of those and thinking and, and sort of reflecting on that. Um, so it, yeah, it is this idea of authority failing you, or the infallible systems which have been put in place being proved, sorry, being proved to be fallible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That brings us on to the cheerful topic of voluntary cannibalism. And by voluntary, I mean somebody who's like, I'm not starving to death, I just like eating people. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which the the witch, um, or ogre, almost exclusively is represented as being, or in that one instance, the, the devil man. Yes. Lost children. Again, check out our double episode on ogres for more about that. (laughs) It's like, I think because the way a lot of these stories are written, it's almost understandable that one might commit murder under certain circumstances. Yes. But that committing murder and then eating somebody, or committing murder with the express intention of eating somebody, like you're butchering an animal, is beyond the pale. That seems to be the line that everyone draws. Yeah. And of course, one of the big things with Hansel and Gretel is that the witch is very wealthy. She has lots of food. She's got this thing of gems. Her house is literally made of gingerbread. And if you think again at the time, what does this, you know, what does this show? This shows extraordinary wealth. 
you know, that she can have a, a confectionery as a house. Well, it's um, like things like gingerbread and march pain and subtleties and things were things that only the very wealthy, the aristocracy, would ever taste. Exactly. So to have a house made of gingerbread um, suggests, I mean, it, like talking about the, the land of cocaine, etc., where people are dreaming of being able to eat like the aristocracy. Yeah. Which means that she's she's making a deliberate choice. Yeah. It's a honey trap. Literally a honey trap. Literally a honey trap. We also get the theme of fraternal love. Yeah, I always, I think maybe that's what I liked about the story, particularly as a child, is the, the brother and sister are devoted to each other. For some problems, Hansel solves them, and for others, it's Gretel. Gretel's willing to kill for her brother. Yes. Which seems like, yeah, that's a logical thing to do. This person wants to eat him. But you need to think in terms of Christianity and the concept of a mortal soul and the fact that committing murder potentially endangers your immortal soul. It's better to suffer in this life than it is to burn in hell for eternity, which is what's been peddled. So yeah. if she's willing to do that, even though I think even the Bible would have exonerated her because you can kill in your own self-defence. Yeah, and also it's a witch, so... And also, it's yeah. <laughs> we're al- they were allowed to burn witches. <laughs> I just, I kind of feel like you know, this very wealthy witch is not actually a witch. We've used the term witch for somebody who likes to prey on other people. That could yes. just easily be a very rich person preying on the poor. Yes. So again, much like those social beard. issues. Yeah. <laughs> so I can get away with it because you're poor. What are you going to do about it? You're going to hire a lawyer? Probably not going to happen. <laughs> So, yeah, um, the fraternal love aspect was good. And I suppose what also appealed to me is the fact that when Gretel is called upon to act, she acts. And she is the little sister. Yes. Um, I, th- I think it also, you know, there there's a kind of an idea then of the sort of also the cunningness of servants and the cunningness of the working class, which you see a lot of um, in sort of folktales and folklore because... Uh, very often, you know, these were from the spinning tales, the working class sharing stories in which they were cunning, in which they were smart, and then that gets changed so that you have princes and princesses and stuff like that. But regardless, you still see this idea of the cunning servant or throughout. And so in this case, Gretel is a cunning servant. She outwits her cruel mistress. We see it in the same with Puss in Boots. We see it with um, Rumpelstiltskin, etc. You have cunning and smart servants who are either loyal or unloyal to their masters, um, depending on how their masters treat them. Yeah, definitely. Um, We've touched on this theme already, but the idea of the woods as a place of testing for adulthoods. And if you think about it, yeah, if you can make your way back after being thoroughly lost there, then you've shown that you can survive as an adult, ergo you deserve the title and the rights and privileges of adulthood. Yes. Obviously, child abuse and endangerment is a is a prevalent theme. Yeah. Um, and honestly, all kinds of child abuse, really. Yes. So, you know, neglect, abandonment. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, pretty much all of it (laughs) it is in it is interesting because i think in some ways i mean it's it's not to say one's well one is definitely worse than the other but the fact is that obviously the mother wants them gone that is a terrible form of abuse um but the way that the father just sort of 
agrees with it. it and stands by it and just goes along with it, now we're obviously talking about certain versions, um, is really disturbing. And they they do forgive him. Um, they do. But Whereas I'd be like, yeah, I'm taking these gems and let's fuck off to the big city and get ourselves an education and some swanky new clothes and a house. Yeah. And screw him, because yeah. someone who stands by and allows someone else to abuse you when you're helpless is as guilty of abuse as the person who perpetuates the abuse. Yeah. Um, and I think that that harkens back to older versions of the story where Hansel and Gretel kind of understand why this has happened. And now they're turning around and saying, actually, look, we can help, we can support this family too. We're not going to be a burden to it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, connected with the child abuse endangerment aspect, there is also sometimes children have to fight back against adults. In that respect, this is actually a valuable story. So you cannot trust. You should be polite and respectful to your elders, but not to the point where you allow them to do anything. And sometimes it, you will have to step outside the taboo of obeying your el- elders to do something to protect yourself. You yeah. cannot rely on other people to do it for you. Yeah. The final one is filial duty. Uh, reuniting family, forgiving the adults who wronged you. Um, which, yeah, as I said, is... If you take away um, the sort of the whole abandonment element of it, there, there's a deeper theme here of this idea of forgiving your parents when you realise they are not, you know, infallible. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, almost exclusively every single version of this story sees the children going back and reuniting with their father. Yeah. Or, you know the parent who was just weak rather than actively malicious yeah um, um and it that the whole it's the whole thing where it's like the family is not right while it's fractured and once you've healed that rift then the world can go back to being the right kind of place again exactly yeah and i think that you know every teenager sort of goes through that period where you suddenly go oh god my parents are sort of not this they're bad they've done this they're problematic etc and then you reach a point where you basically forgive them for disappointing you essentially yeah. and go actually we're we're all we're all adults now um and i can see this that, and the other now obviously in the particular case of abandoning your children in the woods i can understand why some people would say i'm not going to forgive you for that um <laughs> but if we look at it just thematically rather than literally yeah it is quite interesting yeah definitely okay let's look at a few modern adaptations yes um i'll i'll field the first one because i genuinely think this might be the best um adaptation or reimagining hansel and gretel i've ever read Mm -hmm. weirdly it's hansel and gretel mashed with the gingerbread man love it (laughs) and this is by lee bardugo of um, Six of Crows fame and it's a short story and she wrote this book of short stories which were basically folk tales that would have been told to the characters who live in her Six of Crows Grisha universe Yes, which is what makes them you know, both piquant and amusing um, The Witch of Duva kind of follows basic, it is a Hansel and Gretel retelling the stepmother has moved into the house and she wants it, there's only one child and she wants the little girl out of it Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, outside the house in a nearby village, little girls go missing every so often, and everyone blames the Witch of Duva, who lives deep, deep in the woods. 
Um, and basically, as the, I mean, you should go and read the story if you can possibly get a copy. I think it's like 99p or something on Kindle. Or you can get the collection, which I also recommend. It's very good. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to spoil a fighter for you, because it, I have to. But um, basically, the girl does get abandoned in the woods, and she makes her way to the cottage. It's not made of gingerbread. But she finds the witch, and the witch asks her what happened, and the girl's very frightened of her initially, and then realises that this woman means her no harm. And the witch takes her in, and she teaches her things. She teaches her um, medicines and things. The villagers come to her every so often for medicines. And the girl's like, I, I miss my father. I need to go back to him. I need to go back to my father, the huntsman, etc. And the witch is very sceptical about this. And mm. meanwhile, more little girls have been going missing around the village, etc. Ooh, I see where this is going, but okay. <laughs> and the witch eventually says, look... If you truly believe your father to be a good man, we'll, we'll test him. So they make a girl out of gingerbread and they dress her in the little girl's clothes and they send her back to her father, who is delighted to see her. And then they watch through a magic mirror. I think it's a magic mirror. as Or maybe it's as crows, through crow's eyes, something like that. And they watch what happens. And what happens is the father at night sits the little girl on his knee and then starts to reach up under her dress right and at which point this little girl who's clearly been repressing the fact that her father is this person um realizes that he's not a good person at all and mm. they understand finally where the little girl's been going missing and she has a conversation with her stepmother and her stepmother said, yeah, I didn't want to marry him. I moved into that house to try and get you out of it because he hadn't turned to you yet. But I knew but could never prove that he was responsible for all those other little girls going missing. And I was desperately trying to save at least one of you. And it's a real twist on the story, but it does still pay tribute to the main beats, if you like, and also the themes of, you know, adults will fail you and some of them are actively malicious towards you yeah some of them genuinely mean you harm yeah i really like that it's a really good story i think it's her best one in that collection but that collection's pretty damn good okay uh the next one is well i'm gonna let you talk about this one as well because it's <laughs> um and it's the wayward children beneath the sugar sky yeah, I've mentioned Wayward Children series before. It's a great series of novellas about children who come back from going through a magical door. So it's kind of like, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia and what yeah. happens to kids who come back and realise they cannot pick up the threads of their old lives. Beneath the Sugar Sky is a bit of a twist on that universe she's set up when a girl from another universe ends up in hours. Mm -hmm. desperate and she needs to get back in order to save her father she comes from a universe where everything is made of sweets and she's literally made <laughs> of gumdrops and stuff herself and wow. i mentioned it because <laughs> even though it doesn't follow the beats of um hansel and gretel it's the fact that you know the king the king of sugars or whatever he's called um her father is it's just this idea of going somewhere where everything's good life is easy and everything's edible and it's like this is clearly kind of <laughs> um, the land of cocaine kind of thing yeah Co cocaine not cocaine not, not the cocaine. land of cocaine that's, you might yeah, think a... everything is edible in the land of cocaine but it's not <laughs> <laughs> depends really I deeply breathed in anyway <laughs> uh, I do like to trip myself up you do 
there is also then Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. Yeah, I don't <laughs> remember this film terribly well. I thought it was an interesting idea. It's, um, I want to say Michelle Doherty and... Um, uh, Jeremy Renner. It is Jeremy Renner. As a grown-up Hansel and Gretel, who, having had their experience with the witch, are now like leather-clad witch hunters. I remember it being very silly. I thought it was a cool idea, but the execution was just really cringeworthy. <laughs> it, it's definitely a film of, of its era. Um, again, yeah. it is, it's a fun idea. It's a, it's a cute idea. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we um, then... Oh, go on. I was going to say, um, the next one, again, it's another indirect one from Shauna Maguire, which is indexing. If you've not discovered the two books in Shauna Maguire's indexing series, um, I highly recommend you try them if you like our episodes on fairy tales and folklore. folklore because she is as much of a folklore nerd and the whole <laughs> indexing thing she's referring to the Arne Thompson index and basically it's this secret bureau of professionals who um, when fairy tales are breaking out they go and they put a stop to it and it's kind of like no there's a 237B happening and there's a Snow White manifesting over on Broad Street <laughs> etc because they have to basically the monomyth is not something that can be trusted it's it's deliberately trying to break out in ways and take over reality <laughs> and it's really cool and there's Hansel and Gretel stuff going on in there as well yes absolutely uh, we then also have The Great Hunger uh, by Martin Gilbert yeah, now I have to confess, I know Martin, and um, I selected this story for one of the Random Writers anthologies, and it's really good. It is set during the Great Famine in Ireland and Gautamore, and it's, yeah, it follows the basic beats of Hansel and Gretel, um, but it, it it also does not shy away from the, the cannibalism and stuff that was going on as well. It's quite a dark story, but it's very, very good. Yeah. I mean, you obviously also touched on Hansel and Gretel a little bit um, in Harker and Blackthorn. I did. I I feel like I cheated a bit because I had them sort of going a bit loopy over the, the gingerbread cottage and the toffee slab pavement and what have you. And then Rebecca going, we don't have time for this, barging her way past the ogre. Yeah. <laughs> the door slamming shut. <laughs> and then a few minutes, there being a scream and a flare of smoke from the chimney, and Becca, Rebecca coming out, dusting off her hands. And Amy's like, What did you just do? It's like, well, That's how the fairy tale ends, doesn't it? <laughs> Lightly committing murder. I just love the idea of Rebecca as Gretel. It's like. Yeah. <laughs> They'd never even get abandoned. She'd just leave the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go live with the wolves. <laughs> Screw all of you! <laughs> oh. Yes. Okay, um, so we've reached the end of our Hansel and Gretel episode. Um, I'm just going to take a few minutes to just sort of reflect. Um, I mean, what would you say is probably your favourite version of, of, of Hansel and Gretel? Um... Of the old versions, then mm. it, it's probably going to be the Brothers Grimm one, yeah. and that might simply be because that's the one I grew up with. Yeah, I mean, although I do love some of those wacky French versions, the, the wacky French versions are very wacky and very French. Um, <laughs> I mean, I did. I grew up um, with Le Petit Pouce, um, but I think I grew up with a very sanitized version of it. Um, 
And even though I did like it, because when I watched it, I was also very young. I was the little sibling um, and I was very small. Well, actually, no, I was never small. I was always very tall for my age, but I felt very small um, (laughs) in comparison to all the adults. So I think that really spoke to me. But I think I also just liked Hansel and Gretel in general um, because of that sibling relationship and because I did have an older brother. And we were very, very close. Yeah. So I, I, I think I, I do actually like same as you the um, the Grimm's version of the story. It, it, it is very, it's very good. It's memorable. There's a reason why people like it. And I think weirdly enough, <laughs> it also play, it, it pays towards what a lot of children's fiction does now, in that you have the same themes of of sort of. Uh, kind of consciousness of of the world around you not being as good as you thought it was, um, hardship, children being placed out on their own, uh, sort of looking for independence, um, but also of food. Now it sounds really stupid, but I I challenge you to pick up any children's book and not find a section which has food. Yeah, absolutely. Where food, food is placed. Food is very, very important in children's books. To be honest, um, anything which sort of really describes sweets and things. I mean, if you have an illustrated version of Hansel and Gretel, you will see like the most lavish pictures of the gingerbread cottage. And I, you know, defy anyone who didn't love the bit in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when they're in that room where literally everything is edible. Yeah, exactly. Seriously. <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> There's a so, lot of uh, eating in the story, basically. There is a, there's a lot good, of eating in the story. <laughs> yeah. Not all the eating is good. <laughs> Not all the attempted eating is good. Um, I did actually see a version of, of Hansel and Gretel, which was done by Knee High Theatre, who I think have actually disbanded now, which is a great shame. Um, but it was a, a semi-musical version, which was excellent. It was very, very good. Very sweet. Um, and ingenious. Um, I don't know if they'll ever sort of put up a, a like a filmed version of it, but if there is ever an opportunity, um, I do recommend you go and check it out. I think I've seen a short ballet of it in film version. I mean, but I'm sure there's a, a ballet of Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, I'm sure there must be. There's there's a number of very weird things that could turn into ballet that you'd think weren't wouldn't adapt very well, but actually they're very good. Yes, <laughs> ballets they'll be like right. What's the most <laughs> child murder <laughs> cannibalism? Great, <laughs> let's do it. Let's make it look beautiful. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Right, uh, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation for you, and I've got one which is going to sound very silly, uh, <laughs> but which I I remember I told this to Jill, she was like, really? <laughs> uh, it didn't strike me as a fan, but you know what? <laughs> Sounds cool. Yeah. Um, I went to see uh, with my, uh, my partner um, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Madness film. And it's actually very, very good. Um, both of us sort of were kind of semi-raised on the um, on the old movie and the uh, the cartoon um, when it was sort of playing and stuff like that. 
And so we we both kind of liked it as kids, and we didn't really like the rec- the the previous films that had come out, the sort of the semi live action ones, where we just yeah. thought well, you've lost a lot of the heart of what this story is, um, and because it is a story which was meant to be making fun of the superhero thing, making fun of Marvel and stuff like that, um, you know it's a parody but it's also got a lot of heart to it um and so when we saw this one it was an animated version we thought let's go and try this out it's a really interesting art style um it's got a good cast and it's just fun and i think that's the really important thing is it's fun in a time where a lot of sort of movies have tried to be become a lot more serious they've lost their whimsy um but one of the big things is that I was watching that and I was like, I totally believe that these are teenagers. Yeah. I totally believe that these are like siblings. Um, so highly recommended. Um, it is very much worth watching. And if you enjoyed things like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, um, I think you'll enjoy this one too. Cool. On that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening. And we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.